This week on The Futurists, Jeff Jarvis. We're misusing the technology. Same thing happens with every technology. It happened with print. It happened with radio. And so how will people take generative AI and large language models and rethink them in what they can do and what they say about us in fundamental ways and then break those habits and break that? Hey there, welcome back to yet another episode of The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with my co-host, Brett King. Hi, Brett. Hey, hey. How you been? I'm good. I'm um, I'm getting ready for the weekend in Bangkok. I had uh, a big uh, conference here yesterday at TechSource, um, and I gave a, uh, a, a a new keynote on what Asia is going to look like in the year of 2050. I think oh. um, I think you would have enjoyed it. You know. So um, one of the interesting stats I found during the research is um, partially due to whole population growth issues. Is you know um, Asia is going to max out at about 5.2 billion in the 20 mid 2050s, but because of that population growth, it's going to result in you know sort of economic surge. And so if you look at China and India being two of the top three largest economies in the world in the 2050-2070 period, um, there are estimates that up to 80% of global economic output will come from Asia. And that's a figure I hadn't heard recently. And we can debate this, obviously, but um, that was, um, that was um, the the ranges are about 60 to 80%. So, um, wow. but uh, having said that, um, it was a really nice opportunity to do, do get on stage again uh, here in Bangkok and do the futurist thing, man. Yeah, good to hear you're getting back on stage uh, just before the next wave of COVID breaks. Uh, so I was talking to one uh, of our of previous course, guests, yeah. uh, Philip Elvelda, as you recall, was doing AI monitoring for health purposes. And he uh, he and I got together recently and he said, um, it's back. He said, there's going to be another break, outbreak, and the numbers yeah. are going up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, uh, and also, I don't know if you know, but you know, you know, remember the um, the book and the movie, The Big Short? Yeah. I can't remember the investor's name, the guy who... who yeah, has told that, that, but yeah, I know but who you're talking he about. Just made, he just made a, like a $1.7 billion bet that the markets are going to crash. So oh, really? that, that's a concern as well. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, we're right on. Well, Brett, it's yeah. come to my attention that not everybody loves the term futurist. Um, in fact, you know, when we first started the show, you and I had a conversation about that because I was a little um, ambivalent right. about the term myself. Right. So, uh, yeah, so this is well, my of course, the objective yesterday. was we wanted to reclaim that, right? We wanted that's to, the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. We're yeah. going to reclaim the idea for us. A futurist is somebody who actually is doing something to create the future, taking a kind of an active and role who comes on our show. Well, that's in, <laughs> in fact the case. Here's the quote because I thought you get a kick out of it. Okay, great. Here it goes I will not predict, for I cannot imagine a more hubristic and fraudulent self anointed job title than futurist. And, <laughs> The person who wrote that is with us today. So that's oh, going to be goodness. my introduction to Jeff Jarvis. <laughs> Jeff, welcome to I the show. I think I need to leave now. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Jeff. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, oh, Great this is going to be oh. fun. So, so folks, for folks who don't know, Jeff is, um, Jeff is the chair in journalism innovation at the Toe Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at the City University of New York's Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. That's a mouthful. Sorry for that mouthful, yes. Yeah, but basically you're focused on, frankly, innovation. We think of that as the future in journalism. And you've been a journalist for a mighty long time. You're the uh, managing editor of Entertainment Weekly and a TV critic and so forth. 
But one of the reasons I reached out to you to do the show is because you just published this great book. Uh, so folks, we're going to hear a little bit about Jeff's new book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis. And welcome to the show. Tell us about Thank the book. You. Thank you so much. I'm glad welcome. to be here. Um, quickly, the idea of the Gutenberg Parenthesis is that we have lessons to learn from our entry into the age of print as now we now leave it for what follows. And I'm not saying that books die or print dies. It might for newspapers and magazines. But I think that the internet may prove to be, I'm not a futurist, so I'm not going to predict, but the internet may prove to be as momentous an invention in society as the printing press was. And if that's the case, what do we have to learn? So the first half of the book but is kind of a loving- makes you a futurist, Jeff. Well, I'm, I'm a pastist. I'm going to the past. Okay, all right. Um, so the first half of the book is, is, is a uh, loving history of print. And then I try to apply some lessons to today about- uh, the conversational nature of media and, and before it became mass, about the mass as an insult to us in the public, about control of speech through things like copyright and censorship, and about the institutions that we're going to need to either revise or support or replace as we enter the needs of this new age. So that's super relevant to our show because in a number of episodes yeah. earlier, we've had guests come out and we've touched topics like the turmoil in politics, uh, some of the consequences of social media, the use of AI for deep fakes and so forth. Uh, the so limitations of capitalism. <laughs> we would love to get into those topics with you. So in a way that even though uh, it might not be a futurist book, it is in, a, in some respect, it fits our thesis quite well. Um, now, folks who are listening, you're probably thinking, wait, another book about Gutenberg. There are literally hundreds of books on the topic. Uh, that's partly because the printing press invention was so momentous. I'm reading the book right now, and I've got to tell you, this is a book that's worth getting. Uh, we don't normally do plugs on this show, but I'm enjoying the book so much. It's beautifully written. It's remarkably concise, given the subject matter. Uh, it moves at a brisk pace. It's very satisfying reading. And the premise is really great, because when you say parenthesis, that kind of caught me, right? Because I'm thinking about it like an American. I'm like, well, those are just the brackets. What's the Gutenberg parenthesis? But you're using it in the British sense, which is the parenthesis is the stuff that's contained within the brackets. And your idea is that there's kind of like a bookmark, a uh, bookend on either, either end of this era, the 500 year era of the printed book and all the artifacts of that, all the, the idea of, you know, linear information flows and fixed media and the idea of ownership of media and, and authorship and authority and so forth. All of that is contained in that 500 year period called the parenthesis. And that's all subject to change. And so if you exactly. think about the impact of the internet. And to give credit where it's due, the, 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 the theory of the Gutenberg parenthesis and that wonderful title comes from three academics at the University of Southern Denmark named Tom Pettit, Lars Ole Sauerberg, and Marianne Borch. And their contention is that the period of print culture was an exception and mm -hmm. that we return now to the opportunity to recapture what print changed. Can we become a more conversational society? This idea that creativity and conversation become content and property to be owned and traded, which is very much of the Gutenberg age, does that change? Does our sense of authority change? If you look before Gutenberg, the scribes were trying to preserve the knowledge of the ancients. In the Gutenberg parenthesis, we honored the author, Frau Doctor, so-and-so who wrote a book. Now, I don't know who we honor, right? We don't so much go to expertise. David, the wonderful friend, David Weinberger said, the smartest person in the room is the room itself. It's the network that brings out all the best of us. And in a time of AI, that becomes very relevant. So that's the really important part uh, is the idea that we're moving from an era of uh, media that's fixed inside of a package or a container, a book between two covers, to an era where information flows on a network. Exactly. And now the way and, I just said it, that's not so neat. Obvious. 
There's yeah. not an alpha and an omega. You know, I think part of the the the, the myth we have as, as writers and also especially as journalists is that we can contain the world into a story, an article, a book that has a beginning and an end and that is neat. Well, that's 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 wrong. And the the chaos of a constant feed on the internet uh, with links all over is it probably a truer representation of reality. Uh, Jeff, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, you talk about the, the fact that various institutions will have to change. I'd love to get into that in a moment. But before that, I mean, one of the things that happened before um, the printing press was, of course, that um, it was much easier to exercise autocratic control and things like that. You know, um, part of the big challenge was to the the church, who was in a, a governance and legal legal role. Um, and we're seeing, um, obviously, gaming of social media, and I'm sure we'll sit with AI for various people to control the narrative or control how information is processed and how we define fake news versus real and so forth. So, um, are you concerned about the fact that um, maybe we might be, you know, just like prior to the printing press, we might be entering a period where that sort of control over society is more possible? In a short answer, yes, I, I think it is because there's manipulation. But on the other hand, what excites me so much about today is that voices that were for too long not heard in mainstream mass media run by people who look like me, old white men, now have their place and have the chance to speak and gather and organize. And I find that very exciting. I think that there's a, there's a huge opportunity there uh, for us to rescale our vision of society down from mass. You know, I'm old enough. I'll, 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 I'll think you guys are younger. I'm old enough to have lived in the Cronkite age where he ended every show with, and that's the way it is, where for many people it wasn't the way it was. And we had a yeah. myth that there was a shared national vision. That was a myth of power. And so yeah. on the one hand, you're absolutely right. We see it with the Trumpists and AFD in Germany and, and Brazil, the last presidency and on and on and on where the, the autocrats can take over. That's the danger. But on the other hand, we see the opportunity for communities to finally be able to come to the table. And that's exciting, but it's messy. Democracy is messy. Democracy is cacophonous. I think we had a myth that it was neat and clean and quiet, and it shouldn't have been. I do think, though, there is a element of sort of generational shift to attitudes and policy, certainly in terms of, say, the role of the corporation in modern society, the role of politics, um, uh, you know, uh, values around climate change and how uh, we should be um, uh, collaborating together. You know, my 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 children, obviously, um, think very differently about those things than my father does, you know. Um, and I think there's uh, an element of generational shift that's coming in here. But that uh, part of that is, as you say, they've built a very different view of community because of their digital native uh, platform, right? You know that they've been friends with friends all over the world through this, and um, their sense of community is quite strong. I think. Rob, you were going to say. I, I'm going to talk a similar point, which is uh, Brett's talking about community and um, and different generational perspectives on community. And we hear this term come up a lot when we talk about network society, right? Online community, which really revolves around conversation because how you present yourself in, in an online community. I think that that's overblown. And I think these so-called communities on the web are in many cases threadbare. 
um, people belong to them. There are cases where they go very deep. There's no doubt about that. And there's cases where they extend to the real world. But in many cases, uh, what we're finding in social media is that when you're part of a community that has 2 billion people in it, it's not much of a community at all. Yes and no, but this is the paradox of scale online, right? The, 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 the rule of the law yeah. of networks is you have to be huge so you can be small. And I think that, that we thought that, for example, Twitter was, we talked to Twitter, we're talking to the world. No, you're talking to a few people there. Uh, and journalists complain that uh, the Twitter is not representative. Well, the subscription list of the New York Times is not representative. And it's also in the larger scheme of things, small. And I think what we can do is join communities in new ways. In journalism, there's so much talk these days about local, local, local. We have to save local newspapers. And I'll salute that flag, sure. But I live in a town with trumpets around me, and they don't like me, and I don't like a lot of them. And so my definition of local includes other groups, right? During COVID, I started a COVID Twitter list where I got very close to a lot of doctors and scientists who were working on that. Having written a book about Gutenberg, I started a, a book history walks Twitter list. I've had prostate cancer, and I talked to people about that online, um, and on and on and on and on. So my definitions of local are many and varied. In February, I was honored to have played host to a Black Twitter summit at my school. And there, I think we see a tremendous example of communities, plural, that managed to use technologies in ways that were not intended for them. Uh, one of the original coders from Twitter was at our event, and he said, we made this for white guys who were going up to South by Southwest. But there was a tremendous savvy that existed in rebuilding this. There's two books to recommend. One is by Charlton McElwain called Black Software, which talks about the precursor to Twitter, all the efforts uh, like Black Planet Online to create these spaces. And then Distributed Blackness by Andre Brock Jr. is a wonderful exploration of Black Twitter. And, and what I say in the Gutenberg parenthesis is that we have lessons to learn, I think, from how they used Twitter not just to do Black Lives Matter, which Lord knows is momentous and important, but at an everyday level to find people who are like them, who aren't under white gaze, who can use their own language and their own worldview and their own experiences with the everyday joys and sorrows of life. That's community. And I think we see examples of it. So you're right, Rob, where it's uh, touted and, explo and exploited by others is if, well, we're all part of the um, New York Times community or the Twitter community, that's BS. But within those things, you can find people of like mind and interest and need, and that's exciting. So one of the things that's interesting about that is it's uh, it's not geographically condensed, right? So exactly. in the pre-Gutenberg era, if you will, people lived in villages, yeah. right? And most people didn't go much further than a day's walk from their village. News traveled slowly. If it came by at all, it was a rioter or maybe a town crier, but even that was rare. There was no printed material, of course. So people didn't know much about what was happening, even in the village, one mountain across, uh, you know, the canyon and maybe on the other side of the ridge. Um, so that's a geographical community. What you're talking about is kind of a, maybe an imaginative recreating of those communities, reconvening communities, but in a different way. It's a community that shares a common interest, um, you know, a community of practice, if you will, or a community of commitment, if you will. Don't have to be in the same geography. You can be geographically dispersed because you're connecting through the network. So when you talk about the Gutenberg parenthesis, it's not like you're saying we're going back in time to the dark ages. We're not going to go back to the middle ages uh, in this idea. No, we're going to build on everything that's there and we're going to build on print culture and the knowledge that came with it. 
But now we're going to do something different. So what does that world look like? What, what does that feel like to you, this uh, post-Gutenberg era? Well, so Tom Pettit, who brought this theory of the Gutenberg Princess to the U.S., is a medievalist. And he studied. Jeff, we're going um, the wrong direction for a show about the future. <laughs> I, I, well, I'm a pastist, man. I'm a pastist. Oh, no, it's um, okay. <laughs> so uh, I'll leave again if you want. Um, so what what he says is that we can learn a lot. He would argue, and, and people who studied medieval times say that there wasn't a dark ages, that it's an odd insult from the future to the past. Yeah. And and so what do we have to learn from that period for for a next book I'm working on about the internet? I came across, I'm going to go past again. Sorry. I came across this concept called fama, F-A-M-A in Latin. It means it is said, and it's really about uh, the reputation that adheres to a piece of information, the teller, the source, the, um, the subject of information. And what it says is that before there was print, before we had these institutions of authority, people had to make their own judgments. But whom do I believe? Why do I believe them? What's their reputation? What's my reputation? How do I understand what attaches to people? And I think we're returning to that now, where um, we become responsible, at least for now, for figuring out what's true and what's not. We can't deputize the institutions we created in editing and publishing and newspapers and journalism because they're inadequate to the task of speech to the scale of speech today. Yeah. So responsibility falls to us. Now, I think we might invent new institutions that come along. But the other part that interests me so much is a return to a conversational nature. And what I was surprised by in, in studying what I did for the Gutenberg Parenthesis is that print in its early days was conversational. Right? Martin Luther was in conversation with the Pope over their books and burnings of them. Um, uh, Erasmus and Sir Thomas More li had literal conversations in letters that they then published as part of their books. Yeah. Uh, Montaigne, when he invented the essay, was, was creating a conversation with his friends or with the world. He wasn't sure. So now we come to today. What happened in the meantime? Mass media happened. The steam-powered press happened. The linotype happened. Scale happened. Mass Broadcasting. Happened. Exactly. Yeah, one conversation left. That's right. So now I think we're returning to an opportunity to have conversation, and we are awful at it. We are out of practice. We're bad at it. Yes, the present state of the public conversation isn't great, but I think we can learn again how to hold that conversation in, in meaningful ways that aren't summarized in ten inches of newspaper type, or that aren't. Uh, robbed of their nuance in opinion polls. Mm -hmm. I think we have the opportunity to have real conversation like we're having right now. Yeah, that is really, really a very good point, right? We see this happen all the time, particularly in podcasting, blogging, and newsletters, where there are plenty of smart, intelligent, articulate people who don't happen to be journalists. And they're Amen. not all journalists, and they don't work for a newspaper. But in fact, they're sharing information that's informative to large numbers of people, right? And so what they're doing is building a new kind of authority and I find this very interesting. It's like a non-institutional authority is exactly. possible to do this. And you do it brick by brick, ep you know, episode by episode or newsletter by newsletter. You build up your authority over time. One of the things you mentioned a minute ago is um, this idea of who do you trust, right? This is one of the big concerns back in the day, you know, pre-print, when a stranger showed up in town, is this a threat? Is this a menace? Is it someone who's good? We don't know. We're going to find out. And if we don't like what he has to say, maybe we'll burn him. Maybe we'll hang him. This <laughs> is kind of a dicey proposition back in, say, 1300. Um, on the internet, you have that every time you run into somebody that you don't know. Yes. Right? Is this yes. a phishing attack? Is this somebody who's trying to hack into my account? Is this somebody trying to steal my crypto? 
So one of the big themes that keeps coming up now, and we're going to do a show on this, is decentralized identity. Uh, it's a big Web3 topic. Yeah. We're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the future. And it's an area I'm doing a little bit of work in. Um, it's important because what they're starting to realize is uh, in the DAO space, where the number of DAOs is proliferating, uh, you need a portable identity that people can rely on. And that is a super difficult problem, but the solution will be incredibly valuable. Uh, the idea there is that you build reputation in one community, and then when you show up in a new community, that reputation is almost like the letter you used to carry from the king or from the duke that said, you can trust this guy, he's decent. Uh, it's an endorsement of sorts. And interestingly, uh, decentralized reputation doesn't need to be um, about your, your name. It can be anonymous because it's a score. And so for some certain groups of people who don't feel comfortable revealing their identity on the web, they can still participate and they can still build up your reputation without revealing their identity. This is a super interesting topic. I know it's a little bit off uh, off target, but you talked about new institutions. And to me, that's one space where we need such an institution. No, I, th I think it's I think it's also I think you see the parallel of it, Rob, in in Mastodon, Activity Pub, Blue Sky, and the 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 would-be replacements for Twitter, where you own your not only your identity, but your social um graph, which is part of your reputation, and how you can then take that portably elsewhere because it's you you it belongs to you. You know what what Elon Musk has taught us is the danger of leaving things like identity and public discourse in the hands of a company that could be taken over by one malign actor. Uh, and so how do we have yeah. distributed identity, distributed reputations, distributed ideas of conversation and, um, uh, and the social graph? I think that's an important development where we're actually just going back to the origins of the internet and its original model, but taking that to the future. Right on. Right on. Super fun stuff here. Um, so, um, Jeff, one of the things we like to do in this show is get to know our uh, audience, or get to know our guest a little bit better. Uh, so we ask a series of personal questions, quick questions. Uh, and the idea here is just short answers. Uh, so if it's okay with you, before we jump to break, I'm going to do the lightning round. Jeff Jarvis, here we go. Okay, so what was your first exposure to science fiction or some visions of the future? What's, what's the first? It could be a movie or a book or a comic book. Had to be The Twilight Zone, um, oh, which, like uh, some of them today, made the future scary, but also fascinating. Is there a particular uh, futurist or forecaster or uh, science fiction writer whose work has impressed you personally? Hmm. Um, Amy Webb gets, gets angry with me because she, she doesn't like my insult to futurists and she calls herself a futurist, but I think she's very smart about, um, looking at the trends we have now and trying to, uh, extend those out. Yeah, I agree. She's, let's she's get, great. let's get her on the show. Yeah, she's great. And she's also, she covers a lot of turf. Like she covers a lot of different subjects. Yeah, you should have her on the show. I agree. Tell her, tell her I sent you because she thinks I don't like her because I make jokes about futurists. You guys are nice enough. It's to not personal. Me. No, we don't like the term. <laughs> so, okay. Um, next one. Is there a particular forecast that shaped your career? Is there something that you came across early in your career that shaped your trajectory? Um, it wasn't a forecast. Mm -hmm. It was blogging after 9-11, which I survived at the World Trade Center. And when I saw people link to me and talk to me and I talked back to them, I realized we were in conversation, different places in different times. That was a zing moment that utterly changed my notion of media uh, and of community and my career. And then I have tried to take that to the future to recapture this idea of conversation. That's a lot of the reason behind the book. 
Right uh, Jeff, just before we go to break, uh, um, I wanted to ask you one additional question. What do you think is the most important technology humanity's invented? <sighs> Sigh. Gee. Uh, I'm still going to go with um, movable type. And let us be clear that movable type was first invented in China and Korea and where you are. Uh, right now, Brett, and that neighbor of the world, only a few thousand miles away, but hey, close enough. Sure, sure. Um, so Asia deserves much credit for the invention of paper and the invention of, which one could also argue was the key invention, uh, but movable type. Gutenberg, we don't know whether there was any connection from Asia to, to Mainz when he did it, but I think it's really important. And you know, it's amazing. For for We're on video on Zoom. I'm holding up to the camera right now a piece of type. It's the letter L. And you think about it that every single word in the entire world for, for almost a half a millennium was set in type one letter at a time. And yeah, yeah. what that did to change uh, mankind, um, humankind, what that opened up as possibilities, bad and good, a 30 years war, but also an enlightenment. I think I still got to go with Gutenberg. Plus I got a book about him. So I, you know, what am I going to do? I got to vote for Gutenberg. Absolutely. Well, you're such a pastist, it's clear. <laughs> All right, well, um, thank you, Jeff. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists. We're with Jeff Jarvis. Uh, we're talking about his new book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick with my co-host, Brett King. And this week, we're talking to Jeff Jarvis, the author of The Gutenberg Parenthesis. Now, Jeff, one thing I want you to share with the audience today is tell us what life was like before the printing press and what was the impact? What are all the things that changed? That kind of Marshall McLuhan idea that it wasn't just that we put, you know, we stopped writing by hand and suddenly we could print and reproduce books. What were the implications of that? Manuscripts and text, which, by the way, manuscript writing and, and scribal writing didn't end after printing. It went on until I would argue the typewriter. But it was the only mechanism for sharing stuff. And the business model was one scribe, one patron, one book, and a lot of time. And and scholars had to travel to books. Um, they were short in supply, obviously. It had a lot of impact. Along comes movable type. And it's important to say that Gutenberg was not a member of the age that he created. He was a member of the scribal age, and he tried to recreate scribes' work and make it more efficient and more beautiful and more perfect and more economical, but he he recreated scribal work. Quick timeline here. In the 50, it, the first 50 years of printing are called the incunabular age, which is the infant age of print. Uh, it still looks scribal. They still uh, published Aristotle. They still went to the ancients. Along this turn of the century, 1500, the business was in shambles. Too much venture money, in essence, investment had gone into printing all this stuff. The market was slammed. There was nothing 
uh, on the on the horizon. It looked like a dead fad, and then along came Martin Luther, and that changed everything because it created a market for pamphlets and for news and for all kinds of things. Plus, Peasants' Wars, the Thirty Years' War, Reformation, Counter Reformation, all of that too. But the book, as we know it now, began to take on the form we know with indexes and titles and title pages and paragraph indentations and page numbers around 1500, beginning then. The next major rush of innovation came around 1600 when we saw the invention of the modern novel with Cervantes, the essay with Montaigne, a market for printed plays with Shakespeare, and the newspaper. And so I think it took that long for the technology and to Chaucer. become boring. Right until we just didn't know what was happening. We didn't care the technologists. And and what happened with the technology was interesting. Next major innovation, 1710, which is copyright and a business model, property. Next, around 1800, you see other technologies for the first time change the technology of print. Steam-powered presses, rotary presses, stereotyping to mold complete pages of type, um, cheap paper made from wood pulp instead of um, your underwear, um, uh, and the linotype. 1920s, we get uh, radio, the uh, broadcast, the first competition along, alongside film with that. Uh, 1950s TV, here we are today with the internet. What I leave out? The internet, right? So we're a, a little past a quarter century beyond what I think is the introduction of the internet to the general public with the browser in 1994. And so I would argue that in that sense, we're only at 1480 in internet years, and we haven't seen the form of the internet's going to take past the scribal form. We haven't seen our Martin Luther yet. We We're haven't still seen in the incunabular age of the of the web. Mm. Yes, bingo. I love that. Yes. Wow, that's astounding. I'm, I'm really glad we we don't have books made of underwear anymore. That's, that's a great <laughs> well, innovation. Great little fact, get... Brett, is that uh, rags and bloomers and such were strategic assets, and they were forbidden from export because you needed them to make paper. Wow. And one thing that yeah, printing yeah, did that was very important is we, we concentrated on books. It also created bureaucracy. It created yeah. uh, song sheets and, and news books and all kinds of other forms besides the book. It, it's true. I was just doing the research on uh, the rise of copyright. And, and one of the things I noticed is when after the church was displaced, right? So you, you talked about Martin Luther. He introduced, I guess, a diversity of opinions about the church, which they couldn't really suppress. So, uh, then we had the Thirty Years' War and a bunch of other religious wars in Europe. After that devastation, the secular state took over management of the information economy, if you will. They displaced the church. And that meant that secular states, kings and princes, had to hire literate bureaucrats. This is a novel and, and basically a side effect of, of the printing press. They had to hire those people because they were the censors. They had to read all the books. And um, for those who are small government advocates, we've had government bureaucracy ever since. So we can thank Gutenberg yes. for that as well. Exactly. It also changed uh, education. Uh, uh, this is a Marshall McLuhan notion, but I think it's a really good point. You know, so the term auditorium is uh, from the Middle Ages, and that's because there was only one book at the time. Uh, so one person read the book to a bunch of people who were listening, auditorium. Uh, and then with the printing press, suddenly you can have a classroom full of people with the same an identical copy of the same text and the configuration of the room changed. And actually that room resembles today's classroom. So that's like a pretty lasting impact. It takes us right up to that age of industrial education that we have today. My hunch is that that's ripe for change as well. That's overdue for change. Hey, Brett, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just rattling here. No, no, fine, Jeff. Um, what uh, On that point, extending from what Robert said, um, 
what do you what do you think is needs to happen to education, particularly mm. you know with the AI infringement on that now, and and the fact that like you know when when I was a kid, we weren't even allowed to bring calculators into school, and then when I was by the time I was in high school, yes, we'd done that, and we started having early computers and so forth. But this is a this is a real game changer, and that that whole industrial revolution model of you know the uh, um, um, the manager at the front of the you know the manager proxy um, at the front of the class and you don't speak unless you're spoken to and standardized testing and so forth. Um, you know, there's many like Jack Maher and Elon Musk and others that think that this needs a complete rethink for, uh, um, you know, the AI age. What, what, do you cover this off in the book? Uh, yes. I, I don't want to agree with Elon Musk about anything, but I, I do think that education has to change utterly, that we're actually, we never fully got out of that auditorium view of the lecture view. And I'm a teacher. And so I, you know, I lecture, but I try not to. Um, you know, what fascinates me about, about generative AI, and I'm not sure where this really ends, where, where, where it goes. I think generative AI could be giving all of artificial intelligence cooties because there's some things it just can't do well and will never do well. And we put it in positions where it fails. But having said that, it's pretty amazing to watch. And one thing that it does is that it makes the writer less special. And I'm a writer, right? But here comes a machine that can turn out text prose that is okay, as well as code and, and, and verse and other things, right? And that scares some people. But I think that the interesting thing to me is that potentially it extends literacy. That in a sense, from Montaigne on to be part of public discourse, you had to be literate in not just reading, but also writing. You had to be able to express yourself in that way. And what generative AI might do is help people who are scared of writing or illustration mm -hmm. or filmmaking to, or code to express themselves in ways that they felt intimidated from doing so. I think that's a lot of potential. And so education has to change around that. We are not assigning students essays to put more content in the world. We got plenty of content. Stop. Right. Stop already. Go right. and generate a movie. Yeah. Right. Uh, do something else. But what we do need, yeah. obviously, is we want them to think. We want them to be critical thinkers. We want them to express themselves. We want them to be able to share their lived experiences. We want them to think through problems. Um, and the education system we've had was built in two bad ways. One was the auditorium, was the lecture, was you're going to listen to me. And the other was the industrial view of there's one right answer and you all need to get to it so we can turn mm -hmm. out the same widget the same way. Um, I think we need to shift our educational systems markedly. When I wrote my, my first book, What Would Google Do? One example from Google was that if you used the old ways to figure out things like misspelling, you would have put a dictionary in every machine. Right. But instead, Google saw a different way to do things. They saw that by seeing how people misspell things, you can help with spelling. It's that kind of different thinking, different opportunity that we have to break forward. I taught a course in reinventing the internet a year ago with Douglas Rushkoff, uh, author of many books. And um, it was fascinating uh, that the students who were, you know, in their 20s, were as old as the internet and they didn't experience the internet we knew in the early days, the early hope and right. the early structure. They knew the internet that's corporatized and centralized and greedy and all the bad things we say. So it was hard for them to imagine a future, a different future for the internet, unless we kind of break them out of their present views. And I think that's the job of education is to break students away from some of, not all, but some of the heritage we give them so that they can do better.
you know, it's interesting you, you talking about the young people uh, and their perce- their experience of the web. It's true. Like they grew up with uh, social media at the worst time when social media was all about bullying, and that was their first introduction. Yeah. You know, it's preteens to the web, so it's like almost have to have a defensive approach versus anybody that was on the web in the '90s, where it was a very communal space and a very encouraging space. They were flame wars, of course. But in general, it was uh, there was a kind of euphoria of ecstasy of communication, I think, in the 90s. A little bit of that's been lost. Um, one thing that I noticed is happening right now with AI, with generative AI, is this flood of data. This is not news. People have been predicting it and forecasting it, but now it's here. If you look at your spam filter and your email today, anyone is listening, I guarantee you're going to see hundreds, maybe thousands of emails that, front, that are basically auto-generated. And that's not all. It's starting to flood into other places as well. Interestingly, Google the company that invented the transformer models that are powering these GPT systems is now suffering from this, from their own creation, because Google results are being degraded now. On almost every topic, you're starting to see Google results full of just garbage that's generated by AI. Um, I was reading Gary Marcus's newsletter, which, by the way, is excellent. Gary Marcus is an AI researcher, uh, and he just published an article called The End Shitification of the Web. And it's a super fun read because he talks about how just this vast amount of garbage, pure nonsense or inaccurate stuff that seems like uh, you know, you know, plausible bullshit is being generated by these systems. And it's gonna create so much cognitive load for the people who are using it that it's ultimately gonna break Google. Fascinating premise, obviously a little bit of a diversion, but here what we're talking about is uh, these are the new artifacts of this new printing press, if you will, this new content generation system, and they're unexpected, right? So one of the things that's interesting about your book is that you you help guide us to uh, the unanticipated consequences of these novelties. I want to talk about, we, we just covered education and we covered uh, youth, but... Um, there's another artifact of the printing press that I think is kind of surprising, and that's the invention of the public, the reading public, right? So the print print creates the reading public because there was people were not the great unwashed masses, the yeah, press. Yeah. and um, and the printing press itself, you know, obviously in- initially was aimed at liturgical texts and clerical texts, breviaries, Bibles, and so forth. But pretty quickly, printers figured out that there was an appetite for stuff that wasn't religious, uh, things like romances uh, and novels, right? The the original novels, uh, things from, uh, you know, tales from Boccaccio and, and Chaucer and so forth. These proved quite, quite popular and quite lucrative. And so as a result, uh, the printers fed that appetite. And as literacy grew, people started to demand more and more reading. And all of a sudden you had something new for the princes, politicians, counselors and kings to contend with which was an opinionated public. And so by the 1500s, you start to see kings like Henry VIII with their own printing presses where they're releasing things like he released his love letters to his uh, to his his mistresses. He let those leak out through his printing uh, his own printing press to build up his public image. And this notion that now suddenly a leader is accountable to a public, an informed public. So that's one out, uh, outcome. And of course, today we can talk about all you know the, the consequences of that. But this is another area where the internet is going to make a profound impact on the accountability of public figures. In fact, it's already happening. Uh, we see it today, right? Uh, Donald Trump is abusing the judges and effect, inflicting tremendous credibility damage to our judicial system right now uh, by attacking the judges who are trying the case. And he knows if they try to shut him down, if they take away his Twitter account or his Truth Social account, he's going to cry out about free speech and all of his supporters will rally to him and he'll become a martyr. Uh, so he's abusing the system in a way that I think the courts cannot contend with. We don't have a great mechanism for that. Okay, I talked too much. I'm going to hold, hold back and allow you guys to chime. <laughs> right, thank you for the so, rant. 
<laughs> yeah, you said you, you you've covered a lot of, of turf there. Uh, let me let me tie two together. The idea of content, which again is a Gutenberg era idea, right? Containing things. Content is now completely commodified. You got more than enough of it, you got tons of it. Um, the other part of this though is that when you expand the ability of people to to speak and be heard, everybody can always speak, but are they heard? Um, there are efforts to control. One of my favorite anecdotes from the book is that the first supposed call for censorship of print came in 1470. Niccolo Parotti, who was a translator in Italy, was much offended by a shoddy translation of Pliny. And he wrote to the Pope and said, you must do something about this. You must appoint a censor for these presses to approve everything before it comes off. Someone who's erudite and smart, but it's important. And I thought about it, Rob, and, and he wasn't asking for a censor. What he was asking for was the institutions that he, a futurist, was um, anticipating of editing and publishing, that institutions that would try to uh, guarantee the th authority and quality of what would come off these presses. And it worked pretty well for 500 years, but it's not up to the task now. But what did come later, as you say, was censorship, was the need to um, and the, look at the Catholic Church its reaction in great measure to Luther, much delayed, was the Index of Forbidden Books, was yeah. trying to tamp down on this. But Luther, the important thing that Luther did, to your point about the public now, is that he chose to publish in German. Yeah, He didn't publish in Latin, he published in German, and thereby he created a public. Habermas would argue that the public sphere came much later in the 18, uh, uh, late 1700s with the coffee houses of London and the magazines there and so on and so forth. And publics were indeed there. But Luther created a public around uh, German. And, and, and not only that, by standardizing German, as he did in his Bible translation, he, he standardized the idea of Germanness, of, of, of a community, an imagined community, as Benedict Anderson said, around the language. Yeah. And one could argue that that was the birth of the nation as well. Yeah, certainly a national identity in German because it was fragmented across uh, exactly. dozens of principalities. And this notion yeah. of standardization is big. Let's bookmark that because I want to hear from Brett. No, I, I mean, one part that I'm, I'm interested in is, is, and this is where I think there's a divergence right now um, from printing um, and that sort of type of uh, content that you've talked about is um, that you have the elements of factual, uh, newsworthy type information. And as you said, we've been challenged with that being um, filtered and, and shaped for since the, the printing press. But the other side of it seems to be the creative element, the storytelling and so forth. And the two sets of tools that might emerge around those different types of uses of content or communication uh, seem to be quite different. So what? where do you think they share a trajectory versus where there's a divergence or, or or, you know, and is there an analogy to the the Gutenberg day? It's a great question, Brett. And and you know, technology isn't neutral, but neither is it determinate. It doesn't determine the path. It's how we use it, right? And I think that generative AI has been misused so far. In news organizations, shouldn't use it because we know it can't do facts. Microsoft shouldn't have put it on its search engine because we know it's not going to return facts. And I was just I'm, I'm on a new podcast on the Twit Network, uh, we're working on one about AI, and yesterday I was having the conversation, and it occurred to me in the middle of the conversation that maybe generative AI should have been presented originally as a creative machine. Mm -hmm. 
this is just for fiction, just for songwriting, just for, for yeah, that would have helped. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we'd done it that way, then it wouldn't be saying, Oh, it hallucinates. It gets things wrong. Yeah. It lies. It libels. No, it makes shit up. And yeah. it's good at that. It's right? really good. It's a really persuasive bullshit artist. Yeah. And it uses all <laughs> of our bullshit in the past. It just recycles our cliches upon us. Right. It, 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 yeah. it brings it back to roost, but instead it gets said, Oh my God, we're going to replace all these jobs. We're going to do all this stuff with this stuff with, with this new machine. It's amazing. And and I think that that we're misusing the technology. Same thing happens with every technology. It happened with print. Uh, it happened with radio. It's well, look, the technology companies. Let's get real. They just shotgun this stuff out there, and they just throw us as much as they can against the wall, and they're hoping that some of it will stick. And by the way, right now, that's not necessarily working so well for generative AI because yeah. the revenues are not there to support the valuation. So it's right. Gary Marcus's next piece was about about whether uh, generative AI is a dud because yeah. there isn't, isn't yes. revenue there. Yeah. It's certainly over. I, I, it's probably overvalued. I don't get Gary's positioning on this as a as an enthusiast for AI. He seems awfully down on on much of what's happening in AI right now. But he's um, a critic of generative I, I, AI. He's a critic of generative. Just that specific. Yes. Area. He thinks it's misused. Yeah, it's kind of true, Jeff's true. point. Well, the other I don't know whether you but guys Jeff, have delved I, I, into uh, long termism and Tescreal and all of that, which is kind of a scary. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you want to talk about yeah, people who think they're futurists, right? Uh, that's yeah. a fascinating part of all this. <laughs> yeah. No, I know it's like a new. Cult. Well, I, I, I do want to put you on the spot a bit, Jeff. In that you say you're a pastor, but one of the things that we like to do as we finish off this show is we like to look a little peer into the future a little bit. So, uh, and I know you, you know, I'm not asking you to make a prediction here, but I'm asking you to make some reasonable forecasts in terms of are there things that you can see emerging that that are going to be quite different in the future that could be game changers or is there something um that you know some characteristics that you think will emerge over the next 20 or 30 years that um that intrigue you i think we're going to see replacements for a lot of things that is to say what i what i you know we see the newspaper in print form is going to die uh, newspaper news organizations as they've existed, I think have a limited term. I just wrote a little book, uh, about the magazine, kind of an elegy to the form. The magazine had its time. It could have been at the center of community. It wasn't. I think it's going to die. Broadcast linear television is dying. The mass is dying. So that much, I think, um, it takes time. Uh, as Tom Pettit said, the other side of the parenthesis is not a, a sharp line. It's could be, it could go on for generations, but um, I think we're going to see opportunities open up. And we see this in journalism, where the newspapers are now, in the United States, most of them are owned by hedge funds. It's a, it's a cluster F. And uh, you see uh, new generative efforts from communities to create their own journalism. It's hit or miss. It's good and bad. It, it's not supportable yet. But there's innovation going on there. You see um, YouTube uh, as a huge force in creativity now. Yeah. Uh, TikTok. I love yeah. TikTok because it's a collaborative. It's yeah, the, the first collaborative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that you see, and, and television, I was an old television critic. I started Entertainment Weekly. I love movies and television. I think they're crap now. There's this, the, the, you know, the, between Breaking Bad and Succession, there's few and far between. So yeah. emergent creativity from, from the public, a lot of it's going to be crappy, but it's going to be wonderful. It, it breaks down the gauntlets that people had to go through to share what they wanted to. Um, uh, so I think 
Let me ask you a related question. We'll see those efforts. Yeah, go ahead. Let me, see, let me ask you a related question. So here is my last question for you. Um, I'm curious about the how we unconsciously carry artifacts of the past into the future with us. And you know, you mentioned one good example, which is that when Martin Luther began printing, he wasn't trying to make books. He was trying to replicate and mechanic, like, kind of do mechanical versions of script, of black letter script. And they're beautiful books. If you've ever seen a Gutenberg Bible, he, he did that quite well, right? Um, another example, of course, is in the early days of television, they tried to recreate radio plays. And now as we move into this generative age, uh, you touched on this earlier, um, you know, because generative AI is trained on existing works and decades and decades of existing works, and because those existing works are by and large written by um, white men, there's a lot of existing bias, the pre-existing bias that's baked into those models. And so that's another example of us unconsciously carrying forward artifacts of the past into the future. And of course, that's going to have an influence on the future. It's going to have. A, so why don't you comment a little bit about that? Because I'm curious to hear your perspective, particularly with regard to journalism. I, I think you're exactly right. And, 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 you know, if I had a machine that mapped the relationships of all the available words from all those white men in all the Internet, I would not use it to create more of the same. I would query it about the biases and right. the, the myths that exist from Absolutely. that and then beat them and then and then and then try to break those habits and break what that is. Um and I think some people probably will. I think that that uh, again uh, Andre Brock Jr in 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 distributed blackness says that what's notable about black twitter was that this was the technological savvy of the users of Black Twitter. They took tools that were not meant for them and they put them to their purpose. And so how will people take generative AI and large language models and rethink them in what they can do and what they say about us in fundamental ways and then break those habits and break that? I think that the old companies, the, the old media companies and journalists uh, are going the wrong path where they're trying to use these to recreate what they already do and we have enough of that. And we see a lot of resistance, right? Certainly in the, at the yeah. college and high school level, you see teachers banning it and forbidding it. And this also sort of sounds like an echo of the Middle Ages where we try to like prohibit. But we had that with yeah. social media and other stuff in, you know, in their, in their times as well. I think that's just cyclic. I, I remember when I was in grade school, you weren't allowed to bring a calculator into the classroom. Right, exactly. Eating, right? And, yeah, of course, yeah. and as Stephen Johnson says, uh, I, think, I think it was he who said it, it's a word calculator. That's yeah. all AI is. Right on. Well, Jeff, it's been a tremendous pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very it's much for great. carving out time to come and visit us. Thank you for making some forecasts. See, you're a closet futurist. I knew you would be. Uh, it's great to have you on the show this week. How can people find out more about you and your book? Uh, if you just go to gutenbergparenthesis.com, you can get a 25% off discount. I know that we don't do infomercials, but what the heck? A, a, you know, a, <laughs> a discount special for our listeners. Um and so you can find that there. And then my blog uh, is Buzz Machine, or I publish at jeffjarvis.medium.com uh, as well. Great. And follow you on Twitter, X. And, and Blue Sky and Mastodon. Yes. Wow. When do you find the time? Well, great to have you with us this week. Brad, always fun to see you. Big thanks to Kevin Hershon for producing our show this week and to all the folks at Provoke Media that make the show possible. Uh, we've enjoyed this week's episode of The Futurist, and we will be back next week with another person who is working hard to create the future of their vision. Until then, Brett, we will see, we'll you, see you in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. 
And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.